so they can listen to Lynn. There we go. And I'm going to pray for you, Lynn, as well, before you speak. So let's just pray together. Lord God, thank you that you are the word. You were there in the beginning. You were there before anything came into existence. There was truth. There was light. There was beauty. And through you, Jesus, creation came into being. And I thank you for this amazing passage. And I thank you for Lynn, who's prepared this talk this morning. And I pray that you will speak to us through her this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Lynn, over to you. I think you're, yep, yeah, you're unmuted. Go for it. There we go. Over to you. Uh, right. Good morning, everybody. Um, I know John. Uh, I know that Sam is all excited about possibly being snowy tomorrow. I have to say I'm not because I have to get to work tomorrow, <laughs> and uh, that'll just add to the hassle. But hey, anyway. Um, so I've been asked to talk about the word became flesh and made his dwelling amongst us. It's the the, the Bible reading that we've got um, is, is an incredible, incredible Bible reading. And it is so difficult to do it justice. There is so much there. You could talk about it for a month of, or, or a year of Sundays probably and still not get to the bottom of it. Um, but it's one of the most incredible writings in our whole Bible. And it starts in the beginning. And you know that that is the start of the story amazing journey of discovery we discover who Jesus is and through that we begin to understand who God is of all the gospels only John takes us on that journey so in the beginning was the word John's gospel is unique amongst the writings of the early church the other gospels we've got Matthew Mark and Luke were all written much earlier and they attempt to set out the details of Jesus' life, what he did and what he said. And they give us flashes of memories of Jesus from different perspectives. For three different audiences, they were aimed at three different groups so that three different groups of people could get a flavour of who Jesus was and is. But John's gospel is different. John was a very old man when he died. He was the only one of the original 12 disciples to die of natural causes. He was probably in his 90s when he died. And it's believed that he wrote down his gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because at that time, right at sort of round about 70, 80, 90, 100 AD, um, he was the only close witness of Jesus st still there. Um, he was the only one left. And the people around him urged him to write his gospel down so that his memories of Jesus would not be lost. He'd had an incredible long life to think about what Jesus meant. So his isn't a gospel just recounting different episodes and things. There's whole discussions of who Jesus is and how he showed God to us. John probably didn't write his own gospel down um, because he was basically an unschooled fisherman. So he didn't know a lot, of, a lot of refined Greek. And this is written in refined Greek, apparently, not that I would know. Um, 
and he was also very elderly and it's thought that a man known as John the Elder probably wrote it down for him but that doesn't make it any the less his gospel and it's the same way as Mark's gospel for example is really Peter's memoirs but Mark wrote them down for him so it, it doesn't make it any the less that he didn't write it down with his own hands. John's gospel is different because, as I say, it's a distillation of almost 70 years of understanding of the things that Jesus said and meditating on them and being inspired by the Holy Spirit and getting deeper into what it all means. John has some colossal thoughts which he shares with us. And when you read John's gospel, you can see it's completely different to the other two gospels, other three gospels that we have in our Bibles. There are actually a lot of gospels written, but most of them didn't make it into uh, what we, we have in our Bible. By the time John's gospel was written down, the church had moved from being a small Jewish, probably 100,000 Greeks in the church for every single Jewish person by then. It had grown hugely in the time that John had been alive. And John explained things in, in a way that would be understandable to his new Greek audience. He'd been on a huge spiritual journey since the death and resurrection of Jesus. You would, wouldn't you? You know, you'd lived with the man when he was on earth. You'd, see, you'd heard all the things he said. You, um, we know that um, uh, John mentions that the spirit was going to be sent so that they would all understand. And he experienced that himself. He experienced an explanation of some of the things that Jesus said, which seemed almost so difficult to understand when Jesus was on earth. But as with all people who walk with Jesus throughout their lives, his, his faith and his understanding changed as he got older, as he, as he dwelt on what Jesus had said and learned from it and tried to live the life that Jesus had taught. So all of us have to progress in our journey with Jesus all the time. And the meaning of Jesus' teaching became clearer and clearer to him as he spent time thinking about it and listening to the Spirit and trying to live it out. At the end of his life, as I say, he was a very old man, and every Sunday he was carried out. Sunday, at the end of his life, he preached on the subject, God is love. That is what he took from all of Jesus' teaching, God is love. And for the, the most important thing he passed on to his followers, he constantly said, little children, love one another. That was the pinnacle of his thought after all these years. As far as he was concerned, it was all about love. In the beginning, John's gospel starts in the beginning. And as I said, you know you're starting a story. And... The first thing you think of, if you know your Bible at all, is you think back to the book of Genesis, because the book of Genesis, right at the beginning of the Bible, starts with the words, in the beginning. And it talks about how God created the earth. And in that first verse, that very first verse of Genesis that we have, God, the word and the spirit are all there in the act of creating the world. And the world itself was created, and then God breathed spirit into the life of his creation. He breathed life into it. His spirit is the life. 
and ultimately he breathed life into the first human beings. And human beings were made in the image of God as part of that act of creation. And the story that John tells is not of that first act of creation, but of another act of creation. He tells of God introducing himself, the God-man, who becomes part of his own creation when Jesus is born on earth. I love this verse. It's actually in the message and it's the equivalent of John uh, chapter, uh, verse 14 that, and the reading we've just read. And it basically says the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. God arrived here amongst us all. The story of Jesus' birth isn't included in the Gospel of John. That's not what he was about. It, it, um, but two of the Gospels do record the birth of Jesus. I learned something a few years ago, but it's been reinforced this year. I learned something about that nativity story. And this is a bit of a spoiler alert because it's not as we are constantly imagining it. And the thing that we teach to our children and the way we imagine in it probably isn't how it actually happened. So I'm going to share that with you. Don't be disappointed because I actually think it adds to the story of Jesus rather than taking away from it. So we've got Matthew and Luke both record the birth of Jesus. Matthew takes a very Jewish perspective and he talks about the arrival of the wise men. Luke was a Gentile and he concentrates on the poorest members of society. All the way through his gospel, you see the poorest members of society mentioned. And he talks about the underdogs. So Luke records the visit of the shepherds, whereas Matthew records the visit of the wise men. And in Luke, we find this recorded. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. This is Mary and Joseph in, in Bethlehem. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, you might notice that, that there's something different in that reading. It's a different terminology to what we're used to saying. Usually it says there's no room at the inn. But actually, it was a mistranslation. And this was changed in the NIV in 2011 because they realised that actually it was the wrong word. And actually, the word that's used here for guest room is the same word that's used for the upper room that Jesus had uh, the, the Last Supper in. So it's the upper room in a house. Palestinian houses had a lower space, which was kind of where you did all the washing and the whatever. And also, often the animals were kept there, whereas the upper rooms were where people slept and um, were comfortable as a family. But it's the centre of the house, the back of the downstairs, because often the cooking was done there, often, as I say, um, the washing and other things like that. And quite often, certainly in the winter, and we don't really think that Jesus was born in the winter, but that's a whole other issue. So it probably wasn't snowing. Um, uh, in the winter, probably some of the animals were kept down there as well, and it was a useful way of heating the house. But so... The inn is no longer mentioned and innkeepers have had a really bad press for 2000 years, really, because they refused access to Jesus. There was no room at the inn. He was thrown out. He ended up in a stable. He probably didn't end up in a stable. It probably meant that the guest rooms up at the top of the house weren't available to him. So he was uh, he was downstairs 
with where the animals were quite often kept if they needed to come indoors. Um, and uh, the reason in was used is because quite, well, well, for our Bibles, the Bibles were translated by European people. And if you went away somewhere, you stayed in an inn, whereas in Palestine at that time, you didn't. Um, so innkeepers have had very bad press and it probably wasn't their fault. Um, but um, so, and, and anyway, Joseph was traveling to Bethlehem because his family were based there. That's where his family had started out. He would have kinsmen there. He would have people who could offer him accommodation but they couldn't give him the best room because somebody else was already in it. So we probably ended up downstairs. Um, and the good thing about a manger, and this, it wasn't unique to Jesus being in a manger. Mangers are pretty baby sized. They're very useful as cots. Um, so it's a perfect size for a baby. To, so if he was downstairs with where the animals were, there was a manger there, put him in that, seems appropriate. So unfortunately, the nativity probably didn't look like this probably never looked like this um, and the wise men arrived much later anyway um, we know that Mary and Joseph stayed in Bethlehem for almost two years because it took two years for the, the wise men to arrive um, so they must have had somewhere to stay all that length of time and the further statement to the shepherds was today in the town of David a savior has been born to you he's the messiah the lord this will be the sign to you you will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And because we're Westerners, we think the sign is that the baby's wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. That was common. That was not unusual. The sign to the shepherds is this is the Messiah. And he's just like you. He's a human being. He's someone you can identify with. Um, they probably wrapped their own babies in cloths and had them lying in mangers because that's what you did. But the sign is, he's just like you. He understands you. He's come to be with you and explain stuff to you. So although it might seem that this is a destruction of the Christmas story, I actually think that this adds something because it's enriched the story hugely. We start, we've always thought of it as being Jesus was rejected at birth by an innkeeper and ended up being shoveled off somewhere. But actually, Mary and Joseph and their new baby-to-be were welcomed into the centre of a pe peasant home. That's where the Messiah belongs. They made room for them, despite the lack of space, despite the fact that Mary was pregnant and she really shouldn't have been. Um, and the whole story changes from a story of rejection to a story of inclusion of being a full part of the human race. And Jesus' message is always all about inclusion. Anyway, back to John. So God was prepared to make himself vulnerable as a baby so that we could understand how he, who he truly is. We know that Jesus is the word of God. John tells us that, and it's quite a difficult concept to get around, but we know that the word of God was there right at the beginning of creation. God spoke things happened. Um, so God is making himself extremely vulnerable as a baby and one of the absolute ironies of this is that the word of God at this point cannot speak a single understandable word. He's a baby. He can communicate that he's hungry and perhaps that he needs changing or he's uncomfy but he can't communicate anything else. And this reminds me of the time when Jesus stood before Pilate the word of the God, uh, the word of God was silent 
as Pilate accused him and didn't speak back and didn't defend himself. It's an incredible thing when you think about that. Paul tells us that the whole of creation has been groaning as if in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. We know that the world is in a mess and it may not be, I mean, this, this is a, a picture which is all about um, pollution and things like that, but the whole of creation has been in, in torment really since, since human beings got on the world because we started doing things to it and making a mess of it really. And whether uh, one of the things that Sam mentioned about that hymn that we, or that song we sung earlier was you know, um, about the men of strife putting down their arms or being quiet or whatever. All of those things tear great lumps out of the earth and stop the harmony that should be this earth that we're living on. And when Paul's writing this, the whole of creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. He might have been thinking of another childbirth because the, the birth of the child Jesus is the thing that starts to sort it all back out again. We've got a long way to go still, but the, the arrival of Jesus teaches us how we can get things right again with God. So it's not just about the environmental things, it's about all the other stuff that human beings do, and animals for that matter, that destroys the environment that we're living in and destroys the world. In John 1.18, as I say, it's impossible to do uh, justice to this reading because there is so much there and I'm really looking forward to the discussion on Wednesday because there's so much else we can talk about. Um, but in John 1.18, John says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the father has made him known. So what does this mean for us? It means if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. As I've said many times, people are probably sick of hearing me say, Jesus is the ultimate visual aid. God is presented in a way and on a scale that we human beings can understand. Jesus came to tell us that a lot of our ideas about God were wrong. He came to tell us that many of our fanciful human ideas um, we, we just got it wrong. You know, we imagine who God is. We imagine he's far off. We imagine he does all sorts of things. Um, often human beings put words into the mouth of God, words of judgment, words that say you cannot be forgiven if you do this, words that say you are worthless. But the message of Jesus and the message of John is that God is love. So when you're in your darkest moments, and we all have dark moments sometimes, when you feel worthless, when you feel that you're doing it all wrong, remember that God the Father delights in you. God loves you and wants the best for you. It can be so hard sometimes, but remember God is there and he loves you. Even when you can't feel him, he's still there. He sent Jesus so that we can understand who he really is. And by following the teaching of Jesus, you can learn how to serve God in a meaningful way. And that gives huge enrichment to your life. So that's really all I want to say really, is that God is there, God loves us, and, he, and, and Jesus was sent really to show us those things. 
I'd just like to end in a prayer for us all. Dear Father God, help every single one of us to recognize the immense love you have for us. Help us to grasp that you sent Jesus to us so that we can understand who you really are. Help us to respond to you by learning to serve you in our daily lives. We want to learn to share your love with other people and to help make your kingdom a reality on this earth. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lynn, for that wonderful um, discussion and, and reflection on this incredible passage. And as you say, I'm really looking forward on Wednesday evening to discussing it uh, even more in depth and going into to, in more depth to some of those things that you've said. I'm just going to